0: And welcome to this episode 20 of the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name's Stephen Watson, the founder of Stack, and this week's episode was recorded live at the book club on Tuesday the 24th of January 2017. Uh, It's a panel discussion featuring Jack Self from Real Review, Liv Siddle from the Rough Trade magazine, and Stephen Greger, ex of Gym Class, and they were all there to speak about the rise of small magazines. Now, obviously, small magazines have been around for basically as long as magazines have, but they were there specifically speaking about small magazines in response to this growing trend that we've seen for independent magazines being big and luxurious and expensive items. And last year, we saw uh, a real growth of publishers who were kicking back against that trend and, and doing something a bit different. Whenever I hold panel discussions like this, I always ask the panelists to basically treat it as a conversation and not not wait to be asked questions. And I'm very pleased to say that they did exactly that this time. You'll hear that all of them had a lot to say about the subject. And I think it was a, a really, really interesting and inspiring um, conversation. We begin by speaking about the magazines that they make and the specific work that they're doing, but it breaks out very quickly into a much broader conversation about independent publishing and and print magazines more generally. I've edited the Q&A session at the end. It was quite long and there were some bits that were a little bit difficult to hear. Um, So hopefully that's made it a little bit more listenable as a podcast. Do listen to to the end. Um, Stephen has got some really interesting stuff to say about his worries about unsustainable business models and what they could do to really harm this very special moment that we have at the moment of of independent publishing really taking off that's it from me i hope you enjoy this conversation between jack self liv siddle and stephen gregor Welcome to this, our first Stack Live event of 2017. I'm very happy to be here tonight um, speaking about small magazines. So we've got a fantastic panel of speakers lined up for you. We have Liv Siddle here, uh, who is the editor of the Rough Trade magazine. Uh, So a a very kind of like zine-like magazine uh, made for Rough Trade. We have Jack Self, who is the editor of Real Review. Uh, which is a magazine I guess begins with architecture but then like spins off out of that into all sorts of criticism uh, and has got some very clever things that it does which um, we'll talk about shortly. Uh, and I now have Stephen Greger at the end who is ex of gym class uh, and I want to have Stephen along tonight because on the one hand he's been an outspoken critic of uh, these kind of like big bloated like luxurious uh, independent magazines and also he's working on his next project at the moment uh, which <laughs> you can't do a zipping mouth sign <laughs> on a panel, that would be the most boring thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I want to talk about in the, uh, the small magazines tonight because I think that an interesting thing happened last year um, so last year we saw uh, the emergence of a bunch of magazines that specifically build themselves around being small. So I kind of alluded to uh, this idea of like sort of a, a creeping sort of luxury in independent magazines, where the like the paper has to be thick and there has to be uh, some kind of like foil on the cover or like that, and they get heavier and more expensive, and before you know it. £15 pounds is an average kind of price for a magazine, and the, I think that last year a lot of, or a small group of publishers, kind of started saying, well no, that's, that's not what these magazines need to be like. So, um, Liv, you launched um, the Rough Trade magazine last year. Yes. Oops. And you, you might need to like sort of do that. Hello. Here. There Ooh. you were, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> was like so to what extent was the magazine already determined when you got there and it was going to be small and zine like and to what extent was that you
1: um when i got there they had decided it was going to be 64 pages and a certain size we already had the um sort of mock-up magazine there and i just kind of took it but i wasn't really concerned about what it felt like or what it looked like at all i just wanted it to be full of really good stuff and um I don't know, I, it was, that was all we had, so a blank magazine, I knew how many pages, and at the time I was like freaking out because 64 pages to be filled every month about music on my own with no team, you know, actually that's what making a magazine every month, every three weeks really alone, so I was just thinking about 64 pages and being like, ah. but um, no, in terms of how it felt and everything, I, I didn't, I don't care, I, I honestly don't care if magazines uh, are very beautiful. I, I prefer the ones that I haven't got the foil um, embossed covers and things. I think the best thing about a magazine is when it flops open. You don't have to hold it open because if you can't read it when you're eating a breakfast, then you know can't read it at all. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I, I like when I see people in rough trade reading the magazine in the cafe and they've put their coffee cup on the magazine. I like it when I give it to someone and they fold it up and put it in their pocket. I like seeing it kind of thrown in the bin. I want it to be as as kind of uh, like wipe clean and sort of foldable as possible. I don't want it to be anything luxurious; it would be wrong. And so it's, yeah. it's a
0: magazine to be used. It's a magazine to be read.
1: Yeah, and I like the idea that it's not something someone's going to keep on their shelf and keep pristine. I want them to like leave it on the bus or you know fold back a page or whatever. I, I really, for me, I, I want it to be cheaper. I'd like to get it as cheap as possible so we can fill it with better stuff. I try to look into doing. As cheap as w- I think we are actually doing it as cheap as we can, <laughs> I'm always going to work out whether we can use a different paper to make it even cheaper. And I think the cheaper the better. Because um, it's be given any- away for free in the shop? If you spend £15 pounds in Rough Trade, you get a magazine for free, otherwise it's now £5, pounds, which I think is a lot um, for what it is. <laughs> Sounds pretty <really> bad. <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't know if I would pay that, that's the thing, like, it, it doesn't, it's not an object of beauty on purpose, but you know, if you want to spend a lo- like £12 on like a lovely magazine, of course, like you want it to be for an embossed and beautifully bound and beautiful image quality. But for something that looks like a brochure, you get free in the in a supplement. I don't know, maybe you want to pay less. I just, yeah, I would rather the money get spent on the content rather than the, the paper.
0: Well, so, so tell us, so for anyone who hasn't seen the Mac, because I think actually to say it looks like a brochure, you get free. <laughs> you know, someday, that's doing it down a little bit so t- tell us because you've got a very unique like approach to bringing life and energy to the magazine and, and how you do that on a team of like one basically
1: team of one uh, <laughs> yeah we just well it's me and Bruce Bruce Usher who designs the magazine um, we just get the content in and we, I, I commission people who I know are, are fun so I commission photographers who I know are funny confident people because then they'll make the subjects laugh, and I want someone smiling on every single page. That's like something I've set out to do from the very beginning. So we get all the content in, and then Bruce and I work into it, and draw on top of it, and you know, put funny things coming out of people's mouths, and um, pull pull quotes that are handwritten, and just try and kind of draw into it as much as possible. I think, I've kind of said this before in talks, but when Bruce Asher first came into Rough Trade and said he would design the magazine, I took him into the customer toilets, and said, I want it to be like this. Because the customer toilets in Rough Trade are kind of drawn all over and there's swear words and it stinks and Mm -hmm. um, there's just people writing their names and writing funny stuff and it's just like a really honest, true thing. You don't get many toilets like that in London anymore, they're kind of dying out. Um, (laughs) But I want it to be like that and I don't want it to be too neat. And there are times when it has looked a bit too much like The Guardian Guide. It's a great magazine but... I want it to be scruffy and, and weird and as kind of puerile as possible. As a big biz fan, I just want it to be as kind of, yeah, un, unclean and, and weird. Um, yeah, so what was the question again? No, 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 that's good, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's good.
0: Um, all right, so, so that's uh, Rough Trade that launched. That's a brand magazine that, that launched in this kind of like deliberately small, scrappy, cheap, uh, kind
1: of well, I don't know if the directors wanted it to be small and scrappy and cheap. I think I've taken it down this puerile toilet humour route um, for some reason. But uh, it is supposed to be, yeah, they launched it as a kind of something to give away and a kind of a marketing tool for the company, essentially. It's not, it's not, not going to make money, um, it's not going to bring in loads of big bucks, which they all seem to be quite surprised about. But I did say that at the beginning, <laughs> um, that it wouldn't. But yeah, no, it's a marketing tool, really. And I'm trying to market what Rough Trade really is which I think is the customers, the staff, the toilets, the personality and the feeling of like friendliness and openness and sort of a kind of hungover vibe, if that makes sense.
0: All right, so we've got a hungover brand magazine. (laughs) Uh, Jack, so you also launched the Real Review last year. So I said another launch, but this is a, a mag that, as I said before, you begin with architecture because you are an architect but then you spin out of that to do other things. Can you tell us what the mag is there to do?
2: Yeah, of course, when you start any project on uh, day one, you have a particular vision for what it might be, and I'm sure this was the same in, in both your cases as well. And then on day two, of course, you completely jettison that and it becomes something else. On on day one, real review was a response to the fact that uh, uh, there are no uh, reviews of books about architecture in the English language being published anymore, which sounds like very geeky, but, you know, that was one of my jobs for a very long time, and uh, and I enjoyed it very much. I, on day two, I was like, no, fuck this. This should be a review. It should take the review as a format and really explore what that can be, and the, the tagline of the magazine is what it means to live today. It's effectively a magazine about um, trying to understand what the contemporary is, and the review is a really interesting format because it's probably in my opinion the most undervalued form of writing today it encompasses everything from a five star amazon product review to um, you know a literary review through to a kind of academic review which you don't see so much anymore but in the 1960s used to be uh, you know these things with titles like a decade of neuroscience in review or a, you know a review of napoleon's campaigns in europe and and these were Uh, Often entire disciplines or entire periods of time that would be summed up and kind of made uh, uh, sensible or able to be understood. And and so that was kind of really the the drive of the magazine. And so you you, um, begin with,
0: um, I don't want to say simple materials because I know how much time and effort you put into making this thing. But you have a magazine that is made of thin paper, basically, Mm -hmm. and it's small. Can you talk us through why thin paper and then what you did to kind of elevate that?
2: Yeah, well absolutely. I mean it's very similar to what uh, Liv was saying which is that um, (laughs) there had been this trend towards the magazines that were really books like biannual or even annual books and at that point, it's like, you know, that, that not, it, that's not for me uh, what a magazine is. And more than that, you know, what, what are the kind of qualities of a magazine which are really valuable? One is uh, finitude. It has a fixed number of pages. It's not like a, a website where you can just publish infinitely. Uh, when you only have a fixed number of pages, you know, we think of the magazine as being like real estate. It has a cost per square foot, and therefore you have to make a priority about what you include. And that forces a certain kind of clarity into your editorial position. Um, but then the other thing is you know that that's that's the essence the essence is not on the other hand producing something which is um, has a huge longevity which you know you're, you're trying to track the contemporary and we publish quarterly so it shouldn't have a life of more than three months really and the question then was how do you create something which is which is beautiful which has its own aesthetic but which is also ephemeral and which can be damaged and destroyed um, so you know the, the basic format of the magazine is uh, it's a really unusual shape. I've got one down here because it's, it, I'm, I'm sorry for your podcast listeners, but it's been quite hard to describe. It's a kind of, um, I mean, it's not any standard format of paper. Uh, it's a custom trim. We make it using a sheet uh, from a Finnish uh, uh, paper warehouse. It's a very, very thin stock. It's kind of Bible paper, but it has porcelain inside it, which means that the show through is very, very low. And it's a very long, thin format with a vertical fold down the middle, which, as far as I'm aware, is the first time this has been done in a magazine. Which, for me, I mean, as an architect, this I think is kind of a genius move on the part of our uh, designers and, p- and partners in the magazine, <coughs> uh, Ollie Knight and Rory McGrath, who are part of a design agency called OKRM. Um, the the machine that puts the fold in it vertically is the same one that puts it uh, horizontally in all newspapers, and uh, yet no one has ever seen that machine used in this way, and the the first samples that came back have been folded the wrong direction. And that shows to me, like, I mean, in a way, the the kind of inspiration that I drew from that was, it's something which is extremely banal, I mean, there's nothing truly revolutionary about it, Um, but through that one single move, you can do something that's not been done before. And in a way, that gives me a lot of optimism about the times that we live in, which is that at the moment at which you think there's really nothing left to innovate and nothing left to do, Uh, within a certain kind of field that every invention has already been done you know these very very simple moves can create something which is suddenly very different
0: okay so we've got the the brand magazine we've got the um, the, I mean it's it's your magazine I I guess it's for your brand because it's for
2: Uh, yeah it's published by The Real Foundation which is a kind of architectural cultural institute that I founded and run Um, but it's more it's more than that in, in as much as, because it's a partnership with, with designers, the sum, it's kind of a gestalt situation. The sum is more, you know, the, the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. I mean, this couldn't have been produced by architects, and it, it couldn't have been produced by graphic designers. It's, it becomes this other kind of thing.
0: So, so two magazines that were launched last year deliberately aiming for this, this smaller, thinner, more disposable kind of approach. And then Stephen, we have a magazine that ended last year. So gym class came to its conclusion.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, hello. Yeah. No. Hello. Hello. Hey guys. Oh, no, no, no. Next no, man. No, no, no. I can just pull out. Try again. Hello. 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 <laughs> hello. Ah, yes, this, this is good. Hello, everybody. Uh Yeah. So. I used to make Gym Class magazine. The last issue was published in September last year. And throughout Gym Class's life, it changed format. It started very cheap. Uh, initially, issue one was like A5, 12 pages, printed a uh, quick copy. Um, uh, issue two and three were A5 black and white, 32 pages. Uh, and then it sort of crept up and crept up and, and, and basically became a lot more expensive to make uh, and I basically th- there, was, there was a whole lot of reasons for me s- uh, stopping gym mainly because I just felt like, like I'd it. done it but at the same time I was just thinking this is so ridiculously expensive to make basically I would spend I had five grand per machine um, I paid Contributors, not very much because that five grand doesn't go very far. But I paid writers, and I paid illustrators, and I paid photographers a small amount. Uh, The last issue was printed on very nice paper. It was printed by one of the leading printers, Um, and you know the the finished product is is lovely. But I'm just thinking, what am I doing? Like, um, so this whole movement of um, smaller smaller magazines, for lack of a better. Way to describe them is not um, born out of fashion or trend or wanting to react to something, it's just knowing that I'm the one responsible for paying the printer and I don't want to pay the printer as much as I have been paid. And I don't think pay, uh, printing on lesser paper, I even hate using the word lesser paper, but printing on cheaper paper. Uh, means that the product in any way is less valuable if editorially it's good I mean that's fundamentally it's either good or it's bad and that only in my mind relates to the editorial Um, uh, so yeah I finished in class of working on very early stages of a a new magazine and from the outset uh, I have a publisher hat on and it's like okay uh, I want to make a magazine, but this magazine has to cover its costs, or at least have uh, an opportunity to cover its costs. And so how do you do that? What's the, what's the approach? Oh, shit, mate, I haven't worked it out. <laughs> um, the, the first issue was originally going to come out, I think, in March or April, uh, and then it got pushed back to September, and, you know, it might get pushed back again, just because I need to work it out, I need to work out what the editorial um, what it will be editorially and what that means for how a commercial partner or an advertiser can fit in with that without um, um, making the editorial content feel less truthful or, or whatever. Um, so I'm still working it out, but it does, it does mean thinking about the size that the, the magazine is. You know, what's the most economical size to print a magazine? Um, what's the most uh, economical paper, but still has qualities that make it worthwhile like the review does. Um, so yeah, there's a, a, a one, at one point there was a printer in Belgium, before that there was a printer in Finland. Um, so I, I still haven't decided on the printer, still haven't decided on the paper. Um, I think I've got the size down, but um, yeah, it's early stages. So I don't have the answer to how to make a, a magazine financial, but I'm still working on it. Still working on it.
1: Why? Um, that sounds really hard. And I, whenever I come and talk at these things, I feel like a bit of an imposter because I'm not doing it out of my own pocket. I'm doing it for a company which I totally own up to. But if why why print something in a magazine when if you're just trying to get information out, can you not do it on? podcast or on instagram or online like what is it about printing it out and going through that that very long painful and expensive process like why do that
2: well if i can jump in there um (laughs) (laughs) i think that i think there's a couple of reasons for for uh doing you know the question is like why why do we print right why do we make real things and and in architecture you know, the great modernist always said that form follows function, and in that sense uh, what it is you're attempting to do will always have a specific format that that follows from it, and in that sense, you know, the real review even at the level of that fold, you know, part of the brief was to imagine the page itself as a type of space uh, and and that there could be then changing relationships between objects on the page, and you can only do that when the page has, I don't know if you know like Mad Magazine uh, was an awesome part of my childhood and there used to be on the back page like a, a folding page which was an image with two dotted lines and then you would uh, fold it on those dotted lines and fold the page into a kind of third of its size and it would present you with a new normally naughty image and this was kind of you know part of the joy of reading the magazine but in a way that that possibility of taking a physical fold or physical space and creating something else was was of the brief and therefore the form necessarily had to follow from that and in, and in that much you know in that sense uh, our associate editor at Real Review said why don't we do a podcast or maybe we should and it's like you know other people are already doing those what how is it that we think we can best communicate this material mm-hmm. What? what is it that we're trying to to say and if you know I think in a way it's like if uh, the magazine no longer successfully achieves what it is you're looking to do you should change format Um, and in that sense I think what you're describing is the more precise your ideas about what it is you're trying to do become the more you see that there can be no other option except for a specific format at least that's been my experience
3: I was exactly gonna say that (laughs) 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 Um,
2: plus you know I I
3: love magazines I just just love them but uh, Intr- I, ha- I have thought and I am still thinking maybe it should in its first instance be a website um, uh, and then build an audience there and then move into something
0: else so I haven't ruled out the, the possibility that that's where it starts um, yeah. and, and so Liv because you um, make podcasts as well yes and so you get this magazine what what would you say to answer your own question, what is the difference for you? Why like what's the value of having that thing in print when you're doing other stuff too?
1: Well, I'm the same. I love I love magazines, so I want to make them, but it is a bit loopy to make magazines. I shouldn't have said that on stack stack of their progress, but it, it is, it's nuts. And I think Yeah, I understand I always think about this, like why why is what I do in a magazine, why can't it be somewhere else? it, it, it it has to be a magazine. There's nothing else it could be. It can have, I like when magazines have their own podcasts or event on the side, so they've got all of these things together, but yeah, what other way are you gonna kind of put all that stuff down and commission people and tell all those stories? And as you say, like, I love how magazines have a finite number of pages and you have to be selective with that content and you have to work out what people are gonna wanna read at that time. Like every month they're gonna wanna read about kind of news and you've got to make it so that if someone finds it in a box in 30 years they're still going to find it relatively interesting so it's kind of like balance between that but um i kind of feel like if you've got something good to say you could just stand you know in a room for people to say it or you can put it out on instagram or anything you can kind of make a magazine in in many different ways doesn't have to be on a in a printed magazine it can just be like design for instance their instagram basically is a magazine and i know they have a printed one too every week which is great best magazine ever even though it's in German and I can't read it Um, but there's ways of there's ways of doing things with the same high quality level of content and commissioning and working with people and you know that's the best thing about making a magazine is working with photographers and artists but you don't I don't think you necessarily have to put it in print but it is the best place for it does and, that make sense well, and, and
0: the, the result of putting something in print is that people will sometimes pay for that yeah so the like yeah. if, you, if you try getting someone to pay five pounds to listen to a podcast no. that's very <laughs> difficult but if someone yeah. some, like, someone will pay five pounds to take the magazine away so i think yeah. there's as much as anything people are used to it like people are used to this idea they'll give you a fiver for that
2: yeah, but th- th- these are two separate questions. One is a question of what, what's your business model, and the other is a question of why, why do you make a magazine, or even in a broader sense, what is an editor? Um, and when it comes to the magazine, you know, there's, it, it's the question of finitude and therefore a question of authority, because if something appears in print, someone's made a very conscious decision to do that but they've also said like yeah you're you're good enough right so it's like well who is that person why are they saying that it's good enough what's their do we trust them and you have to build that kind of over a long period of time so there's a real kind of authority to that and particularly I mean even now uh, that's not the case with websites you when I worked as an online editor I would often be like you know this piece it's just kind of it's so so it's not great but it costs us nothing to publish it so we may as well that doesn't happen in, in, in print um, the question of business model is a completely different one, in my opinion, which is, you know, your, your magazine could be effectively, I mean, my long-term ambition is that Real Review will, um, you know, pay for itself. At the moment, it, it is subsidized by a combination of the Real Foundation and it was supported by Kickstarter. And of course, Kickstarter is a really interesting model. We use it quite a lot in the Foundation for publications because it's effectively pre-selling something. You can tell whether or not someone's interested in what it is you have to say in advance, and that's really powerful but in a way they're you know they're two two separate things for me and and I think it's not always such a great idea to be thinking about you know will this sell while you're also doing editorial activities Mm -hmm. so the so so thinking
0: about then reasons for making magazines cheaper kind of like pick up on both of these sofa magazine uh, is another small magazine that was launched last year and so Sofa is based in Berlin and it's from Ricardo Messner the publisher of Flanner, and that was her very deliberately saying I want to make something cheaper because even though Flanner has a high cover price they can't make money on it because it costs so much to make and it costs so much to move it around the place so there's a, there's a pretty straightforward economic reason for why you might make something cheaper but then I feel like there's something else going on as well, and I wonder whether, like, is there a cultural reason for making something cheap? Because when you're when you put a very high cover price on something, you automatically uh, define the audience that can across that. Yeah. Totally. Whereas when you make something cheaper, you make it more widely available. So Stephen, I know this is something that that you've talked about with your like idea for a magazine. So like you know. Well, <laughs> I don't want to go too far into what this idea is, but the, what, like, what's your feeling on having that uh, cultural impact actually affecting what people think?
3: Uh, I, I, uh, I don't know really how to answer that, but uh, with the, the new magazine, I feel like basically gym class... Uh, lived inside a very small design bubble. And I know that the new magazine, for it to be successful, needs to find its audience that really has nothing to do with that design bubble. So it's about making it possible for me to get it in enough places where enough people will see it and hopefully purchase it. to make it viable uh, because uh, the new magazine will be a, a general interest, a, a very general uh, mainstream topic and it needs to be in
0: the places that that reader will be. So it needs to be in a lot of places. So you're you're thinking like you want to be in Smiths or something mainstream distribution? Yeah, well I I naively thought I could
3: get in Smiths and then I (laughs) realised how expensive it is and how much waste there is and uh, started to, my wallet started to close up and uh, morally I started to get quite confused that uh, it just seems outrageous to me that that's the model and there's so much wastage and it's so expensive in every turn um uh, yeah so i yeah (laughs) i actually don't know if it means being a wh smith but it certainly means uh and again i'm still obviously in the early stages trying to work this out but uh, maybe it means just being in train stations or something but I know that the magazine won't succeed if it's only stopped in on the shots at stopped gym class. Uh, even if it only has a three man cover class, I know it will still fail because uh, it
0: won't reach reaching
3: the right audience.
0: Yeah, yeah. and so Liv and Jack, when I was talking about the like the cultural impact that both of you started nodding away. What's the like what's your aim, either of you, with what you're doing?
1: I don't know, but I've just been thinking about um, the guys who make Belleville Park Pages and how they have just got like the right idea. If anyone doesn't know what Belleville Park Pages is, it's like these two guys, these two young guys who were friends in Paris, and they were living in this like tiny attic room, like ten stories up, as you do in Paris. And they had no money, and they wanted. They realized that there was nothing. They were really into like poetry. And there was no poetry magazines. So they just kind of got all the poets they knew to write down their poems and they printed out a sheet of paper and printed like like five poems and folded it so it's like a tiny little leaflet and they hand stamped each one and each issue cost the same as a price of beer wherever you are and it cost them like 30p to make each issue and they just they just kind of got rid of them and people subscribed but they weren't i don't know that that's that's for everyone and you can read it in under 5 minutes it's it's amazing and they and it's so cheap that you just once you finish with it you leave it somewhere else and someone else can have it i think that is like the most perfect thing because you're just going even if you don't like poetry it takes five minutes to read so who cares if you don't like it or not like you just give it a go i think that is like when i first met them and heard that story i was like whoa you just you just cracked it (laughs) um but in terms of like a, a cultural thing what you're trying to give people i don't know i i would hope that rough trade magazine is is for the customers who like coming into that space and enjoy the feeling when you go and talk to the staff and you have this kind of lovely personal connection and that feeling of being in a shop that you know, kind of like a family vibe and it's non-patronising, it's kind of straight up. I try and make the tone of the magazine as much like a conversation you'd have in the pub as possible, so quite pub chat basically, not like um, loaded or anything but um, (laughs) FHM style. yeah I think that's important and the customers seem to like it they come in and get it but also that magazine rough trade magazine is all the customers are hoarders they're collectors so of course they want to come and get it because they can't go a month and miss one you know what I mean so it's like you're you're already giving something out to people who love buying stuff (laughs)
0: that's so cynical you're targeting a group of vulnerable people yeah of
1: (laughs) of which I am one of them you know I'm not you know laughing at them I am one um they collect like receipts,
0: like, whatever. But um, yeah, knowing that that's what they want is, is a good step, I guess. And the, and so this all has relevance, both so for like culture in its broadest sense. But Jack, with a, a magazine like yours, which is fundamentally a magazine of ideas, and we're living in this time which needs ideas. We we need people to help us make sense of what's going on.
2: Yeah, I mean, at the risk of appearing fatally sincere real review is really propaganda it's not really magazine per se because the, the real foundation uh, is uh, set up with a series of kind of mission statements and um, core beliefs which revolve around inclusivity uh, equality uh, democracy and various other types of awesome stuff uh, and you know therefore but but specifically because we're mostly architects within real foundation um, specifically how that manifests in space and and you know I mean one of the kind of uh, Let's say one of the good examples for this is that in in the 19th century there were a group of um, American uh, women who eventually became, you know, basically American suffragettes and They were looking for ways to improve the education of American women Um, And they came up with an idea uh, that um, maybe in the same way that men you know, not all men went to university. Most men who lived in rural environments would go to an agricultural college. Maybe you could create a kind of college for women that could be used to surreptitiously educate uh, uh, women and to give them more uh, power in the house. And they, they called this class Home Economics, and it was really kind of interesting course because it covered everything from like how to bake a cake, uh, kind of food science, through to like how to run a household budget and basic finances, how to apply for a mortgage, how to decorate an interior. It's a very kind of interesting subject, and as part of home economics, they also designed a number of, uh, and Dolores Hayden has a fantastic book called The Grand Domestic Revolution on this subject, um, how how, do, how they've designed these floor plans, and one of the floor plans for these, you know, basically around the idea of scientific, uh, you know, um, optimization of the home, and uh, one of the floor plans that they came up with basically puts a straight line between the head of the table uh, in the dining room and the armchair by the fire, at, but that straight line passes through the kitchen and the laundry which previously would have passed down a, a hallway and what that did was suddenly you know these farmers were aware of the work that the women in the household were doing and what i find very powerful about this concept of space is that um, through such a again through such a simple gesture uh, you have objects which are both metaphorically and literally true at the same time which i think is kind of unique to architecture in my opinion it is metaphorically the head of the table, and literally the head of the table. And if you if you have, for example, a round dining table, then there is no head of the table, and you change that power dynamic completely. So in that sense, that's pretty much the objective of Real Review, which is to explore how space enforces and reinforces particular types of power relations, gender relations, uh, social and cultural relations in society. And not just, you know, th- there's a kind of double act to it in the review, which is both to understand what systems around us mean, and then how we might intervene within those systems, and that's that's the essence of real review. So that's
0: what it's all about. Mm. That's what it's all about. I should I should like give a public health warning: <coughs> if you do read the real review, you will end up reading other stuff that the real review has put you onto, and it will start changing your mind about the world.
2: But that's the that's the best part, right? I mean, like, I had this amazing professor at university, and um, sometimes when I would read his essays that he wrote. Uh, I would be like, wow, this guy's like such a genius. And then I would read the books that were in his footnotes and be like, well, oh, you know, they were okay. But then if you look in the footnotes of the books that he references, that's where like the awesome shit is that's super <laughs> obscure that he doesn't want you to read. like. That, in a way, is the logic of the real review. You might not get the best stuff from what we reference, but look at their footnotes, and that's where we're plagiarizing from. Okay. <laughs> so if you've got
0: enough time, you can find the plagiarism. Um, I'm going to ask for questions from the audience in just a minute. But um, I, I want to ask you all, so we've been talking about the benefits of these smaller, cheaper, more disposable magazines. What are the problems? What the, like, why isn't everyone just doing this? <coughs>
1: in making a magazine. They're the
0: particularly the type of magazine
1: that you're making. Oh my God, uh, me personally, I came in, I used to be editor. to do It's Nice That and then I had about 10 months freelancing and then I got the job at Rough Trade and they were like, we need, we're gonna make a music magazine, can you come in and make it? And I was like, cool, my dream job, swanned in. And then realized that the staff and the customers, they didn't want a magazine. And I had to spend like six months persuading them that I was okay. And that I was gonna like treat it with respect, and I wasn't gonna make their company lame, and I wasn't gonna—you know—it's was huge, huge amount of pressure, and they didn't like it. And it took a while to get them on board to, to to go into a brand like that, a beloved brand that people hold so dearly to them, like in a really personal way, and make something monthly on your own to sum up the amount of love that people have for that company, and you know, get all the names of the bands right and. All the the stuff that goes with it was, like, the most terrifying, awful thing. And I can't even... You know when you're, like, in some kind of car crash and you forget the car crash because you've blocked out? I can't even remember what last year because it was just... It was really hard. I think trying to make something that people will like is is very difficult unless you have a lot of self-confidence. But to, to go into someone else's world and make a magazine for that world is, like oh, my God, don't do it. <laughs> but I managed to get them you know, convinced in the end, and it's OK. But that was just through being incredibly respectful and learning that I wasn't, I didn't know anything about music. I thought I knew everything about it, knowing that you are not the most knowledgeable, and knowing that just because you're nice doesn't mean people like you is uh, really important. <laughs> anyway. <laughs>
0: Stephen, Stephen, you're clutching
3: the microphone. Where would you go? Um, Why aren't more people doing it? Why isn't everyone doing it? Well, I think it is, I think it is, I think there has been a rule set that if you uh, want to make an independent magazine, it needs to be this, and this is expensive paper, this, these dimensions, uh, this number of pages, it needs to have uh, these, you know, it has to have an illustration from one of these twelve popular illustrators in it. It has to use that photographer, or at least one of those photographers from that small pool of <laughs> cool photographers. Um, and that's become the norm. And I think for a lot of uh, um, potential, uh, for a lot of young magazine makers or a lot of young people who are or people who are keen to make a magazine, they feel like that's. What it needs to be—that's what it needs to be to get written about online. That's what it needs to be to get stocked in stores. Um, So that becomes the rule. Um, Hopefully, it's not the one. Hopefully, there are lots of uh, smaller magazines that come out and show that hey, it doesn't have to be that. Um, As a magazine reader, I would much, much prefer to have a 64-page. Uh, monthly magazine or quarterly magazine rather than a 300 page annual magazine I, w- I would much prefer that as a reader because I want the relationship to feel like it is ongoing uh, and regular uh, so that's why I think more people are not doing it but hopefully hopefully that will change hopefully that will
2: change mm. you, you really got to balance that frequency so well, though, because I subscribed to the Economist for a year, and it, like it comes every week, and uh, you know, it's like I don't know, 128 pages or something. I would only get kind of halfway through reading about you know, why Merkel was going to lose the next election. Then there's another one there, and it's like, oh my God, there's a crisis in the Gambia, and you're kind of <laughs> constantly, <laughs> trying. you feel this immense stress and pressure because it's too frequent, see, it's too much. See, that's okay because
3: I don't think, uh, I don't think you have to read everything in the magazine.
2: I think it's
3: okay to pick up your monthly mag and read two articles in
2: it. I I encourage everyone, it's better that you buy my magazine (laughs) and don't read the whole thing (laughs) than don't read the magazine. Or buy it, but... On the other hand, you know, as, as an editor, every time I see a magazine, I'm like, Jesus, do you know the people that, that sweat and bled to get this thing to you? Do? <laughs> do them a favor and read the whole thing. Anyway, I, I, maybe another quick point about The Economist. One thing I do really love about them in terms of what you're saying about kind of name checking is they're all always anonymous, all the articles. I don't know if you've noticed that. I find that like the ultimate ball's activity. It's just like so boss to you know, it's like Obama's writing an article and you're like, nah, we won't put his name on that. It's like, it's quite awesome. But the, you know, why would you, why isn't everyone doing a magazine? Because it's it's a real fucking pain in the arts. It's an absolute, it's a, such a pain. It's, it's a pain at almost every conceivable level and often in ways that you haven't thought of in advance. Um, you know, there's new pains around every corner, uh, and, and so if, if, if I could, uh, I would just write for someone else's magazine, and I'd be well paid. And I don't know. I guess I'm describing like kind of eighties. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, twenty years ago, thirty years ago at this point. I mean, I started in newspapers in the mid two thousands, and by then it was already a disaster. Um, but the, you know, the point is that basically, I did it because no one else was doing it. Um, if someone comes along and produces a magazine which is similar and somehow uh, and it would not be very difficult to produce something which is more commercially successful, uh, we, we basically, I mean, I think one of the reasons you start a magazine is because you're insanely naive. Uh, I think naivety is, is as you were saying, you, know, you, you kind of swan into these gigs it's like, yeah, we'll knock out a magazine. And that's like, what? How many hours are we going to be working on this? Um, and then the other thing is that once you start, you, you can't stop. It's, it's like, you know, drinking too much alcohol at a pub. Once you start going to the loo, that's it for the night, right? You break know, the seal. Break, well, I don't know if it works the same way in men, but yes, pretty much. Um, yeah, pretty much that's, that's the vibe. And So now I've got, I'm kind of compelled to produce this paper artifact every three months. Uh, I've got obligations.
0: Alright, someone save us from a Jack and Liv's urinary <laughs> metaphors. That
1: should be a magazine in itself. Well, Jack the, and the Liv's the, the metaphor according to rough trade. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Um, do we have any questions for the panel?
1: Yeah. Um just in listening to you all talk, it seems like um a lot of what it comes back to is like the honesty that comes with something being tactile and like kind of giving it back to like the every path. Um, do you think that that, like, nostalgic idea of a magazine or, like, a bulletin or a zine is a lot of what, what informs what you do? Is there, like, a kind of level of nostalgia of just, like, giving it back to the people in a day where we can kind of consume anything?
2: I have no nostalgia for the past whatsoever. It was not better back then, ir- irrespective of what we might be tempted to believe. Uh, the only way is forward, uh, but those qualities that you're describing, which have to do with, I mean, the, you mentioned the the, the the construction of a community, because I mean, we discuss community, it's maybe the most overused word, at least in architecture today, you know, community consultation, all these things, but communities have to be manufactured, they, they don't just naturally exist, and they often begin, you know, whether you ask a group of people a common question, or they have something in common, like they're studying together, or whatever it is, right, you have to create that community, so those those qualities that you're describing, whether it's the creation of community, whether it's a desire to communicate to a mass audience, so that is to communicate with people who are not just like ourselves, but who might have, you know, who might have voted for Trump, I mean, you know, that in a way, like the Daily Mail reader, if I could convince them to enter into my world of feminist spatial theory Mm -hmm. that would be kind of an amazing win for me Mm -hmm. so in in that sense those those qualities that you're describing in terms of you know qualities of nostalgia Mm -hmm. they're all super valid but I think the important thing is to not look back but to imagine what they mean today and and how we can reimagine them for the world that we live in now
1: yeah I think it's a bit like um, when you when I was a teenager I used to like carry around certain magazines under my arm at school so everyone knew I was reading that magazine i feel like that as you said the community part of it is is still there mm-hmm. Although also i'm a big like i i like old stuff and i hate new stuff um <laughs> which sucks um <laughs> but yeah it's a, it's a community thing you're totally right as long as that's there it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what what time it is or how much it's costing it's just the community spirit is most important and if you do that through a magazine which you can quite easily then that's that's the best yeah
0: and i also think there's something about. The, this idea of when you read a, a print magazine and you allow yourself to be absorbed by it, you really take in what is being said, you take the time to understand and appreciate. And I think that these days people think of that as nostalgic because they think, well, the internet is now, mm-hmm. and people used to do this thing of like taking their time and reading something on the side and it's like I, I don't think that's nostalgic, I just think that's human that's yeah. just like
2: how we yeah. absorb stuff mm-hmm. I, I'm sure you've seen the statistics from New York Times that uh, some of their most popular articles are like 8,000 word pieces that people are reading predominantly online so people's attention span hasn't gone I mean, I think that people will, maybe some would argue that people are reading less books and therefore they're prepared to commit to longer form journalism as a result. You know, they don't read a 60,000 word book, they read five, 10,000 word New York Times features. Um, So the way that we read has changed, but you know, it used to be uh, considered a sign of heresy to read inside your head. I mean, all monks, who were the only people who could read, used to read out loud. Uh, If you were caught reading in your head, it was like, bad news. Um, But in a way, I mean, Part of the other value of this magazine, particularly the way in which you form community, is uh, not to be nostalgic in any way, but the, the common materials of society are dissolving in one sense, in as much as... Um, I don't know if it's the same with, with British Telecom in the UK, but because I grew up in Australia, although I'm English. Um, but you, everyone used to get a telephone, like a standard telecom a telephone in your house. And maybe you'd upgrade it, but most people wouldn't. Um, and you know, there were obviously post boxes and there were benches and in a way the vision that we have of the places that we live is often built on these kind of you know, public phone boxes or whatever it is, it, these these common artifacts, these common materials that we that anyone can use and that we all share in common. And in a way what's nice about the magazine is that when you hold a magazine, you know that it's a physical object that the other readers all have. It's not that some of you are on Android and some of you are on Apple, It's or some of you are reading it on a laptop and some of you on a tablet device, or fablet or whatever they're called, but you're all reading this, right? You all have the same base point, and it's not gonna capture your metrics, it's not gonna study what you think, it's not gonna try and sell you an Amazon product based on which article you read and for how long. It's like. You want to read the magazine you do if you don't no one knows you can pretend to read the magazine you can actually read the magazine yeah. there's a certain kind of autonomy and anonymity within the magazine which I think is also you know not to be underrated in a kind of mm. post Snowden NSA post Trump post brexit post scenario <laughs> <laughs> so many posts okay um,
1: it's kind of related- I think it's always going to be there clinging on desperately it's not going to go away same with like film photography or vinyl as you say it's never going to stop people are always going to want to put it in print for all the reasons we've just said like for what you said about people just kind of wanting it as kind of like a, a way of getting away from places that track your movements you know something to read on the toilet something that isn't gonna i don't know like Something you can read that isn't no one knows you're reading, or something you can carry around and feel like you're part of a group of people that read what you're reading. That stuff's not going to go away. Um, I think it will be around for a long time. Whether it gets more cheap, more expensive, it will kind of like, I guess, it will undulate forever in terms of being. There are uh, trends that come and go, definitely in magazines. You know, like the whole kinfolk trend. That's we thought that was going to be around forever. That's kind of dying out now, I guess. that like the whole like clean living. Mormon style, kind of <laughs> like candles in a field of sunflowers, at a ta- dinner a table. That's kind of I don't know. I think trends come and go, and magazines will always reflect that. And I I would like to see more magazines be a bit dirtier and a bit weirder, um, and not not afraid to use humour. Because I think when you're making a magazine that is, um, as we've just said, it's very expensive and time-consuming and, and painful, as <laughs> you said, very painful. Uh, it can it can be easy to forget that you can have fun with it and be silly and put stuff in there that is literally a waste of paper. But um, yeah, I think hopefully that will come back into a trend, and then probably go back to candles in the field again. But yeah, I think there's always going to be a necessity for them, so I think it will stay. What
2: do you think? Uh, of course, we have a vested interest in saying that uh, Apprentice Forever. <laughs> yeah. um, what? I would say is I guess there's two ways to answer your question one which is in the immediate uh, moment now and the other is in a kind of broader view and I take very long views of history uh, you know, humans have remained effectively genetically unchanged for 200,000 years which means that the last 200,000 years of our uh, evolution has been cultural evolution but basically if you took a human from 200,000 years ago they're the same as they are now you could educate them so, on. so it's, it's basically system operating system upgrades. It's not a fundamental hardware upgrade. Uh, based on that, you know, I would imagine that uh, the desires that we have in this room now will con- will continue in the future for you know tens of thousands of years, or maybe longer. Therefore, while I'm not prepared to commit to paper itself, uh, the the desires to communicate with each other and to to have this uh, uh, you know um, this essence of community and these other things we've been discussing, and particularly the, the, the use of writing as a way to explore ideas, I find that very hard to imagine that it will go. I mean, one of the personal reasons that I write is that everyone thinks they know what they believe, uh, and they think they have in their mind a kind of very well set out series of principles by which they guide their life, but it's only in the process of discussing or having conversation with a friend that you realize that you, you actually didn't know that you believed that until you started saying it that's why I write because often I don't know what I think about something until I start that process and I think other people will always find that a useful activity specifically when it comes to magazines things like kinfolk I mean yeah soon we won't be able to afford to live in London and then we'll all have to move presumably first to Milton Keynes and then further afield and then you know (laughs) we'll be living in the countryside and suddenly light candles in the sunflower field and be like suddenly super relevant again (laughs) so those that's of trends I think you know come in and out and and in in that sense you know I, I think it's In a way there's almost a banality to the predictability of magazines which is it's always the opposite of whatever is the current thing you know it's reaction and action and reaction so in a way an attempt to avoid that and an attempt to touch on this question of how you produce something which is both timely and timeless um, you know for me part of the brief to our designers was it must look like nothing that exists now but it must also look like nothing which has existed. I mean, that, that creation is, is like almost impossible to achieve. But if you set up that, with that as your ambition, then hopefully you won't produce something which is already a historical relic at the moment that it's being produced. It, it, it keeps that, that sense of it being alive.
0: Um, I, I just want to say, we need answer. to be a, a little bit careful with the vinyl thing, because there are fundamental differences. And well, there, there are similarities, but I, I, for the most part, when you are listening to music, you just want to listen to the music. And if I walked into a bar, and they were playing an MP3 version of a song, or they were playing on vinyl, I might notice if I didn't see the like, record player in the corner, but I also might not. Whereas if you read an article in print, or if you read it on the internet, it's a fundamentally different experience reading it. And, and kind of like Jack says, I, I'm not saying that it will be paper forever, But I think there will be something forever which is a way of communicating words and pictures alongside each other to get an idea
2: across. But in in the same way I said there's a difference between editorial and business model, there's a difference between what you've just described, which (laughs) is the difference between a rental model and an ownership model. I think increasingly, you know, basically we live in a world which is increasingly dominated by rent. Uh, You know, Thomas Piketty, this awesome economist, he mapped that between 1901 and 1990, if you went out and got a job, on average every year you would earn more than if you invested your money in the stock market. Now that's no longer the case. If you have money, you will get richer. If you don't have money, no matter how hard you work, you're not gonna get richer. And therefore you will be a renter your entire life. It's not just a question of renting your property, it's a question of renting your music. You know. When we're talking about why vinyl has become popular, in my opinion, it's it's partly because people don't want to be renting something. You know, they they want to own the thing. They want it to be theirs. Uh, I don't honestly. I mean, I've I've heard the rumors going round. I don't think there's a real difference between. But maybe this is controversial between vinyl and, and other forms uh, of. Yeah. I'll Stop there. I
1: agree. I would, yeah.
3: Can I just oh, can I just say uh, about. Indie mags. I think, I I worry that we are in this bubble that will burst when people uh, uh, stop being interested in making one-off magazines that cost a lot of money, but there's no way they can make a second issue, or there's no way they can make a third issue, or there's no way they can make a fourth issue. So I I really do worry as someone uh, from a business model point of view that. This will dissipate when people get bored of that. Um, and I think as a community, we need to encourage each other and we need to support the very best of what's out there. But we also need to be very certain, in my mind, to celebrate the magazines that are sustainable financially. Because if a magazine comes and it has two issues or three issues, and then it goes away, it may have been fantastic. but the lost potential. In. What if it had done ten issues, or fifteen issues, or twenty issues? Amazing. So I do worry that we celebrate the new too much and not um, give praise to the magazines that are s- sustainable. Cause for, for me, they're the most inspirational. Yeah, you right.
2: Okay, well, I, I, I feel like I, completely I, the opposite. I, I, I feel, I'm gonna
0: <laughs> cut in, a, in because I want to take one more question before we. Um, head off, and we've got one from this side. So, for the people over this side of the room, the question about distribution and how do you get outside of what the shops tell you that you have to do and how do you earn revenue on your magazine that's not necessarily just from selling in Smiths or something like that. Um. <laughs>
2: we, we got turned down by a big distributor today. They said they wouldn't stop Real Review or help us distribute it because it was the wrong format. And had we considered redesigning, well,
0: they go really? the point. I mean.
2: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, My my initial response was like, man, that's bullshit. And then my second response was like, okay, fine. It, that's fine. Uh, that's not going to be, as, you know. On the one hand, obviously, I'm looking for mechanisms within uh, capitalism and neoliberalism in order to resist precisely those mechanisms. And you know, we are we are a subscription magazine, and we were uh, created using Kickstarter. And the Kickstarter was set at quite a high figure: twenty-three thousand pounds. And that, uh, in fact, we got 26,000, and we needed that much. That was the realistic cost of running four issues of the magazine, which is what we're committed to and, and, and will produce. Um, part of that is obviously testing the market. If someone is prepared to give you that much faith and trust, like, who the hell are these guys? Actually, yeah, I will support this. Already, that creates, uh, I, I think, a certain type of, of audience and, ded- and dedicated audience as well. The second question of, of you know, our ongoing business model is subscription, and of course, subscription allows you to do a lot of different things. First thing is that people have already bought the magazine before it arrives, uh, so we don't have, I mean, this is part of our format, also part of the cover. I mean, the cover doesn't have to have glossy images, doesn't have to seduce you in any way, because it doesn't have to stand out from it. Um, it's it's you you know it's it's already prepaid in a way, and the other thing is of course we take all of those costs of distribution ourselves. So we are exploring wider distribution, but in a way it's like what in a very kind of classically neoliberal sense, what's the incentive for me to stock uh, with uh, uh, a uh, you know in a way this distributor should be explaining to me what the advantages of stocking with them are, um, and if that means you know on on the one hand. Our circulation now is about, it's almost 3,000 copies. And at at 4,000, we break even to the extent where we can even have a small staff, uh, uh, one or two people to work on the magazine. And that's my my goal for 2017, to get us to that point. At that point, it's like if you've got a circulation of 4,000 plus and you're breaking even, there is no incentive to follow traditional business models at all. Um, so in a way, like, I mean, in as much as I said earlier, you know, form follows function, I would almost suggest that form follows finance. You kind of, in a way, need to have the, the structure of the business model that you have in mind. Uh, uh, is it sustainable or not in advance? And then the, the outcome of that will, you know, I don't know, I'm trending off there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna see him do you have anything to add?
3: Well, dis- distribution is the question that comes up pretty much at every single event. Uh, and finding a way, like subscription, in my very small experience, subscription or online sales, direct online sales is obviously the best way to go because I get more of the money, but we, <laughs> d- we do need to find, uh, well, we do have to work out a way to better distribute our magazines. There, there is a um, magazine in California called the California Sunday Magazine which has done something amazing and I can't believe it hasn't been copied where they distribute via, um, I think it might be four, premium California newspapers once a month on a Sunday. They pay the papers to be in as an advertiser insert would pay. And then they're guaranteed however many million readers, or not guaranteed readers, but uh, million distribution, yeah? Circulation. Um, And then they sell advertising based on that circulation. That is an amazing innovative Uh, way to get your magazine out there and I'm surprised that hasn't um, been copied but that's just one example, there's got to be so many more ways
2: but in a way I mean stamp is one of those ways Yeah. Uh, you know because (laughs) while you were talking uh, (laughs) I I just read an article this morning (laughs) about Japanese vending machines and uh, the reason there are so many Japanese vending machines is because the cost of labour is so high and then I was like maybe we should have like magazine vending machines you know because cut out the books and then I was like you know Jeremy wouldn't like that and then I was thinking (laughs) but Stack is in a way addressing precisely this issue which is how do you have an invisible immaterial uh magazine store and because it's exactly like with records someone has to in effect curate or edit what it is that's being provided Mm -hmm. and they have to you know when I go to a record store I like music, but I have no way of really knowing what's cool. So I go there precisely so that someone will tell me what's cool. And you you actually need that as a function of, of publishing, generally. Uh, it, it, precisely as you were saying, to separate the wheat from the chaff, pretty much, in biblical, <laughs> in biblical terms. Well,
0: to finish on an app for Stack, I'm really happy with that. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for, for coming down tonight. Thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, I hope that you will stay around, have a beer with us afterwards, uh, and tell all these guys how much you like the magazines. Um, so, Liv, Jack, and Stephen, thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this week. I'd like to say thanks again to all of our speakers. I really appreciate them being so open and honest and talking about the things that they do. We all know that making magazines is really hard and, and difficult for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but I just love the way that whenever you ask any independent publisher about it, they will share the, the various different approaches and solutions that they're finding to things and they're having fun at the same time. Um, I just find it really inspiring stuff. And it's a real pleasure to be able to um, talk to them about it. If you're thinking of making your own independent magazine, there's a little bit of an advert coming up. You may be interested to know that uh, I'm running a publishing masterclass at the Design Museum from the 25th to the 26th of February. That's the Saturday and Sunday, 25th, 26th. We'll be spending a whole weekend getting really, really deep into some of the thorny questions about the things that you need to consider when you're publishing a magazine. We're bringing in a bunch of magazine makers to talk about their experiences. Uh, And as much as anything, you will be spending a whole weekend with a bunch of other people who are all thinking about the same questions that you are. If you're interested in that, go to the Design Museum site and search for Publishing Revolution Masterclass. Uh, That's Publishing Revolution Masterclass. It's £125 for adults, and then there are some sessions for students Um, so it's not really cheap but it will be really really good value Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing it it's a long time since I've done one of those okay that's it for me for this week Um, as ever if you've enjoyed this please go and follow us on soundcloud or itunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from and we'll be back next week with another of our podcasts